Would you please uh, turn in your Bibles once again to John 9.39. John 9.39, that's on page 12.35. Did anybody smell anything odd coming in today? Smells like what? Spring. I paint. I smelled some paint too. And then the men's breakfast was here on uh, Saturday. There might be some residual aromas from that. So, so one second. Ah, that's better. You may be familiar with a product called Febreze. By some modern marvel, it claims that by spraying this product, it does not merely cover over odors, it eliminates them. Whether that's true or false, I'm not sure, but I I do know that we have this at our house. And it may be the case that uh, some of you have seen their advertisements on TV for Febreze, and they all share the same tagline. Here's an example. In one of their advertisements, we are shown a teenage boy. He's in his bedroom. He's sitting on a soft, comfy chair. And of course, because he's a teenager, he's playing video games. And then a voiceover announcer comes on and tells us, Jimmy thinks his room smells fine. But in fact, we learn that his room smells like sweat socks. And immediately, the curtains disappear, and in their place are these giant sweat socks. And it's to illustrate how bad his room smells. It smells like a locker room, like sweat socks. And then the announcer, in a deep and serious voice, tells us that Jimmy does not smell the odor because he's gone nose blind. I don't know if you've seen that commercial. He's gone nose blind. And the announcer explains that nose blind means that Jimmy has grown accustomed to the odor in his room and therefore he doesn't notice it. Isn't that an illustration of sin? It is part of our nature not to notice our sin. We become accustomed to it, or we can become accustomed to it. Oh, we're, we're good at seeing sin in other people. Am I right? But as far as seeing sin in ourselves, we can go nose blind. Now, as we return one last time to the story of the man born blind, the key issue is not being nose blind, but being spiritually blind. In fact, When we are spiritually blind, we not only fail to see our sin, but we deceive ourselves into thinking we're one of the good ones. Before we are converted, that is, before we come to Christ, we live in the stench of our sin, and yet we tell ourselves we're one of the good ones. The Bible says that in our natural condition, we are blind and living in darkness. And for those who remain in this state of darkness, it does not end well. 
That is why all people need Jesus and the light of Christ. That is why Jesus extends an invitation to believe when he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When we turn to Christ, his light reveals to us the state of our fallen hearts. When we are in the light of his glory and we reflect on ourselves, we see ourselves, we realize the fallenness of our hearts, the darkness of our hearts. And when we confess our blindness and the darkened state of our hearts, that's when Christ heals us. And that's when he gives us eyes to see. As we return one last time to the story of the man born blind, it will be abundantly clear to us what the main theme of this section has been. The main theme has been the works of God. When Jesus and his disciples met the blind man, Jesus explained why this man was born blind, and he explained why he would heal him. Jesus said, it was so that the works, plural, the works of God would be revealed in him. As the account unfolded, we observed that there were two kinds of works that were done in this man's life, and both were miraculous. The first is that this man was given his physical sight. Never before in history had anything like this ever occurred. The man himself testified at verse 32, since the beginning of the world, it has never, it has never, no one has ever seen anything like this, that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. But there was another, even more important work. This man was given his spiritual sight. He was given the eyes of his heart. God did a work in his heart that allowed him to see and recognize that Jesus is the Christ. In the scene we examined last week, when the formerly blind man was visited by Jesus a second time, the man recognized Jesus and he confessed him as the Messiah. The man said to his healer, Lord, I believe. And with that, the man worshiped him. And so the main theme of this account is to highlight the works of God. These works reveal and confirm that Jesus is the Christ. But throughout this story, there is a secondary theme. And that secondary theme is division. Division. As Jesus reveals himself and he calls upon the world to believe in him, this causes division. Let's recall what happened when the formerly blind man arrived back at his home. His neighbors immediately divided into two camps. They argued whether or not this was the same blind man. Some said, yes, this is the blind man. But some argued the other side and said, no, he looks like the blind man, but this is not the same man. Well, they couldn't settle their dispute. And so the neighbors performed what amounted 
to be a citizen's arrest. And they dragged the formerly blind man to appear before the Pharisees. The neighbors were probably thinking, well, we don't know if this is a miracle. Let's take this to the Pharisees. They're the experts in spiritual things, or so they thought. But among the Pharisees, once again, there was a division. They also divided into two camps. But while the neighbors debated the identity of the blind man, the religious leaders were focused squarely on Jesus. In verse 16, one camp among the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Because Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, they labeled Jesus as a sinner. But some of the Pharisees questioned that conclusion. They asked, how could a man who's a sinner do such signs, signs that clearly point to God, to a divine work? The Apostle John then reports there was a division among them. Well, John makes a very obvious comment that there was a division among them to highlight the fact that wherever Jesus goes, whatever he does, whatever he says, it causes division. The blind man has made his choice. He has chosen to be on the Lord's side. He said, Lord, I believe. And there will be others who will also believe. But the majority of people will not believe. Jesus himself warned us of this in John chapter 3. When Jesus said, The light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. As we have seen, wherever Jesus goes, he reveals himself as the Messiah. And as he reveals himself as the Messiah, this causes division. Some have seen the light, while some prefer to remain in the darkness. And for those who prefer to remain in the darkness, who prefer to remain blind, Jesus will now deliver his parting words. And his parting words are words of judgment. And it is sadly ironic that this scene would close with words of judgment. I say that because up to this point, it has been the Pharisees who thought they were in the position of judgment. They thought they could pronounce judgment over the blind man and determine whether or not his miracle was authentic. They sat in judgment over the man's parents and threatened to excommunicate them, to put them out of the synagogue. They even thought they were qualified to sit in judgment over Jesus. And they even declared that this man's a sinner because he would show mercy and heal on the Sabbath. But now, what we are seeing is a divine reversal. Jesus will have the final word, and they are words of judgment. Let's go, please, to John 9, verse 39, 
as we pick up where we left off. And at John 9, 39, Jesus says this, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. As Jesus begins his statement by saying, For judgment I have come into this world, that might leave us a bit puzzled. That is because, at first glance, it seems to contradict what Jesus said in an earlier statement. Back in John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then, in verse 17, Jesus goes on to say this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to do what? To save the world, that the world through him might be saved. Now, since Jesus said earlier that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, why is he now saying, For judgment I have come into the world? While these sayings might seem to contradict one another, in reality, these two truths do not contradict one another. Instead, they complement one another. Said another way, they are two sides of the same coin. Jesus came into the world to save. That is the key purpose of his coming. In fact, he endured the cross, and he gave his life for us on the cross to save us. But for those who will not see the light, who prefer the darkness because their deeds are evil, will face judgment. As Jesus speaks of judgment, an important clarification needs to be made. In the context of this passage, I will suggest to you that Jesus is not speaking about the final judgment. In the final judgment, Jesus will send all people to their ultimate destination. Some will be saved to eternal life, but some will be cast into the outer darkness, the darkness that they preferred. I suggest instead that the judgment that is in view here is a judgment that occurs now. This judgment concerns the division that is now being made between those who believe and those who will not believe. This is a division between those who see the light and those who insist on remaining in the darkness. After Jesus makes his overarching proclamation, saying, for judgment I have come into the world, he now describes two very different conditions, conditions that warrant his judgment. If we continue on in 39, Jesus goes on to say this. He's coming to the world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, 
and that those who see may be made blind. The first condition will be more apparent to us and a little easier for us to unpack. And the reason the first condition is more apparent is because it was clearly illustrated for us by the story of the man who was healed by Jesus, the blind man. As we have discussed several times already, while Jesus gave this man his physical sight, we also saw that Jesus enabled his spiritual sight. When the eyes of his heart were opened and the man could see the truth, the man proclaimed that truth when he declared, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, and he worshiped him. The story of the man born blind is representative of all mankind in the sense that we are, by default, born into sin and born into spiritual darkness. We were all born blind. We inherited these conditions of sin and blindness from our first parents, from Adam and Eve. They brought sin and darkness into the world. I ask you, did anybody teach us to sin? No. It came quite natural to us. And because of our sin, we are separated from God. We are in darkness because of our sin. That is why the Bible says we need to be reconciled to God. Our inheritance in nature is stated very clearly by the Apostle Paul. When he writes in the book of Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God, the apostle says. The reason no one seeks after God is because we are born blind. We are spiritually blind. And because of this blindness, we don't see our sin and neither can we see the way to eternal life. Some say the way to eternal life is by our works, but that's not what the Bible says. There is only one way, the Bible says, to be reconciled to God, and it is by faith in Christ and Christ alone. That is why Jesus declared of himself, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is not only a marvelous invitation, it is a miraculous invitation. Because for those who recognize and confess their spiritual blindness, God gives us eyes to see. For all who confess, Lord, I am in darkness, and I need you, Lord, I need the light of the world. These are given the eyes of faith, and they recognize Christ. And like the man described here, say, Lord, I believe. Therefore, in terms of this first condition, as Jesus says, for judgment I have come into the world. And why? So that those who do not see may see. And the way I understand this is, for those who confess our innate, natural-born, spiritual blindness and confess that to God, these will be given eyes to see. But there is an opposite condition, and it is the condition of unbelief. And for those who refuse to believe comes judgment. 
As Jesus gives the second condition, he also says that he has come into the world so that, quote, those who see may be made blind. In order to understand this part of the saying, we will need to take into account who is present to hear these words at this moment. Let's have a quick peek at verse 40, and then we'll come back to 39 for a closer look. Look at verse 40, please. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? You see, some of the Pharisees are present to hear Jesus' words. Now let's bear in mind an important description that Jesus has made about the Pharisees. On multiple occasions... Jesus described the Pharisees as blind, did he not? He called them blind guides. At Matthew 15, 14, Jesus warned the people to not follow the Pharisees. Why? Because he said, when the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. With that in mind, let's go back to the second, the negative condition in verse 39. So Jesus says that according to his judgment, those who see may be made blind. Now, as Jesus speaks about those who see, and he's talking about the Pharisees and people like them, we need to think about what Jesus means when he speaks about those who see. Because he's already told us that the Pharisees are blind. They're blind guides. And so I believe the best explanation is that Jesus is referring to those who think they see. He's referring to those who claim they see. And there will be evidence for that as we progress. Jesus is speaking about those who in their pride, who are in their conceit, they think they see, in a sense, they think they see, meaning they have all the answers. They think they see the way to heaven. They think they they see the way to heaven. They think they see, they think they know the way to God and to heaven, and in their distorted view, they see the way, or they think they see the way, and it is by what? Works. It is by their own supposed goodness. They say that by keeping the law, They will earn their way to heaven. So when Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, there are many who in their arrogance and pride say, no, I don't need you, Jesus. You say you are the way, but I already know the way. It is by my works, they claim. Therefore, as Jesus says, those who see may be blind, I suggest what he means is those who think they see, who claim they see, these will be made blind. You see, the consequence of pride and conceit is more blindness. The spiritually blind are made more spiritually blind because of their conceit. This increased spiritual blindness is also described in the Bible using a different metaphor. And it is God hardening the hearts 
of those who were already, whose hearts were already hard. God hardening the hearts of those whose hearts were already hard. For example, think of Pharaoh during the times of the Exodus. When Pharaoh was warned that a series of plagues would come upon Egypt if he did not let the Israelites go, what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart. He would not relent. Despite several, suffering several of the ten plagues, Pharaoh would not comply. And because Pharaoh would not do as God's word commanded, we are told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Meaning, God took Pharaoh's hard heart and further hardened it. Because of Pharaoh's blindness to the miracles that were being played out right in front of his face, God brought judgment upon Pharaoh's heart and made him even more blind. This is the same idea of what Jesus is describing when he says that in his judgment, those who think they can see, therefore they reject Christ, they will be made blind. Let's go please to verse 40. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to Jesus, are we blind also? John does not provide an explanation as to why the Pharisees are on the scene here. But nevertheless, they are there. And clearly, they are defensive. They understood that the latter statement that Jesus just made, a clear statement of judgment, they understood it was directed toward them. And so they ask, are we blind also? Now, in the Greek text, the form of the question indicates they are expecting back a negative answer. Now, we might understand their question something like this. We're not the blind ones, are we? Because they're not really asking a question. It's a rhetorical question. It's designed to make a statement. They're saying we're not the blind ones here. You see, in their pride and in their conceit, they, can, they are convinced that they can see just fine. They have all the answers. They know the way to heaven. They think they can see the way to heaven. After all, they saw themselves as the experts in regard to everything that pertained to God. And they saw themselves as the experts because they were the experts in the law. And since they knew the law... They believe they knew the way to heaven. And because they had all the answers, because they knew the way to heaven, they had no use for Jesus. No need for him at all. Like the Pharisee who famously said in the temple, thank you God that I am not like this sinner over here, this tax collector. I'm one of the good ones, the Pharisee thought. And so these Pharisees have no need for a savior, no need for a, ma a mediator between God and men. They got it covered. They're going to do it on their own. They think they see the way to heaven. And so after the Pharisees ask their rhetorical question, which is effectively a rejection of Jesus, Jesus will now respond to their question. And his response is the final word in this, the story of the man born blind. 
And this saying pertains not just to the Pharisees, but to all who refuse to believe. Let's look, please, at verse 41. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. It's a tricky verse, but I think we're going to have it pretty much figured out by the time we leave here. Now, in order for us to best understand this saying, it will be helpful for us to first focus on the word sin. Jesus says, if you were blind you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. I suggest that for this verse, we understand this reference to sin to represent the worst kind of sin. And when I say or speak of the worst kind of sin, I'm not referring to murder or something like that. The worst kind of sin is unbelief. The worst kind of sin is not believing in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here's why. For those who believe in Jesus, all sin is forgiven. In fact, for those who believe, the Apostle John tells us, he who is faithful and just cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But... For those who do not believe, as Jesus says here in this verse, for those who do not believe, your sin remains. And so as we approach this verse, which describes two possible conditions, two possible outcomes, we will understand that the sin Jesus is describing is the sin of disbelief, of unbelief. And with unbelief, In the end, sin remains. Let's have a closer look at this verse. But I'm going to suggest that we start with the second clause, which is the negative proposition. And the reason we're starting with the second proposition is because I want to start with the bad news first. And then we will go to the first proposition so we can end with the good news. And of course, the good news... Well, that's reserved for the people who believe. In the second part of the saying, Jesus says, Now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Well, this is the bad news. It is the judgment that Jesus pronounces on the unrepentant, unbelieving Pharisees. It is the condition where Jesus says, your sin remains, which, as I just suggested, is the result of unbelief. And tragically, it is the same judgment for all who are like them, who think they know the way to heaven and eternal life, and they think they have no use for Jesus because they have no need to be shown the way. They think they know the way because they are convinced that they will get there to heaven by their own good works. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, you say we see. Notice, Jesus Jesus does not suggest that they do see. He says, you say that you see, meaning they claim to see. They think they see. They think they have spiritual sight. In their arrogance and in their pride, 
It leads them to believe that they have spiritual sight. They think they have the answers. They have everything they need. They're the experts of the law. And because they're the experts of the law, not that they necessarily practice the law, but because they know the law, they think they can see the way. And what do they do? They give give themselves a passing grade. They're sure they are worthy of heaven. They think they see. They, They say, we see. Now let's remember a claim that was made by the Pharisees as they were interrogating the formerly blind man. The blind man revealed that he considered himself a disciple of of Jesus who healed him. And then the Pharisees said to him at verse 28, this is the Pharisee speaking to the blind man, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. And so in their view, they have no need for a Messiah. They already believed they had a deliverer, namely Moses, Moses the lawgiver. They have no need for a savior. They have no need for a mediator to reconcile them to God. They would do it on their own, by their own supposed goodness. Now, despite their obvious inability to keep the law, They are self-deceived, and in their pride, their supposed goodness, they have put their trust in themselves. They reject Christ and his offer of divine forgiveness. As a result, they invite unto themselves God's judgment. And what is God's judgment for unbelief? According to Jesus, because of your unbelief, your sin remains. Let's conclude by focusing on the positive proposition for those who do believe. Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Let's remember once again that important biblical truth that says there is, <clears throat> there is no one righteous, not even one. In other words, there is no one who is without sin. Of course, there is one exception. And that's Christ alone. But as for us, there is no one who is without sin. Therefore, when Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin, he must be speaking of being forgiven of sin. The only way we can have no sin is if we are forgiven of that sin. And the only way we can be forgiven of sin is if God forgives us. And so if we look again at the first clause, and Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. We might understand this as, if you were blind, you would be forgiven of your sin. See the transitive property there? If you were blind, you would be forgiven of your sin which then requires us to ask a question. In what way would blindness allow the forgiveness of sin? To answer this question, we will need to compare what is said here to what we observe from the Pharisees. And what did we see from the Pharisees? Arrogance, self-righteous pride, a false belief that they would make their own way into heaven. And so on the opposite side of this equation are those who are humble, 
who recognize we cannot do it on our own, who recognize we do need a savior. And so in direct contrast to the Pharisees, this was a man who understood his need, the man born blind. This entire story is illustrated by the man born blind. In direct contrast to the Pharisees, the blind man understood his need. Think of it. In terms of his blindness, terms of his physical blindness, didn't he realize he had no hope? In the sense, there was nothing, absolutely nothing he could do to heal himself of his blindness. He was born blind and he would be blind for the rest of his life if it were up to him. And so here's the key point. The same truth pertains to salvation. When we realize there is nothing we can do to heal ourselves of sin, there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We need to confess our need for a Savior, and when we confess our need for a Savior, then there is hope. For those who confess that we were born spiritually blind, and because of that blindness, we cannot find our way into heaven on our own, these are given the light of Christ, and Jesus will show us the way. I submit that is why Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Meaning, when we confess that we were born blind and confess our need for Jesus by saying, Lord, I believe, that is when we are forgiven and that is when we have no sin. Because of Christ, our sin is forgiven and we have no sin. And for those who are forgiven, the Bible says that we are rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into light of Christ's eternal kingdom. And when we are part of that kingdom, we can declare, and we can do so even now, Lord, I once was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have this wonderful, factual story of the man born blind. And how representative it is of our own helpless condition. When we confess that we were born blind, that we cannot see the way to heaven, but we need to be led there by you, Jesus, the light of the world. That is when we will find you and you will lead us to our heavenly home. For all who profess, Lord, I believe. Amen.